There used to be a television ad for Smith Barney that went something like this. Two very well-dressed businessmen were walking down a hallway towards a very crowded and busy elevator. They push the button, and the doors open. As I said, it's busy, it's crowded, and extremely noisy. And the two businessmen enter the elevator, and the one man says to the other, my broker is Smith Barney. And he says, and immediately upon that, there's silence. Everyone quits talking, and everyone leans forward with their ear cocked to hear what the man is going to say. The slogan is, when Smith Barney speaks, people listen. The idea was, if you want to get rich, if you want to have a great investment, just listen to what Smith Barney says, and indeed, you will become rich. This morning, our theme is that we should listen to all that Jesus has to say. That when Jesus speaks, people should listen. Matthew chapters 7 and 8 have to do with coming to grips with Jesus' authority. Matthew has been stressing the authority of Jesus, and especially the authority of his word. Christ's word carries with it authority. In Matthew chapter 7, verses 28 and 29, the summation of the response of the people to the Sermon on the Mount is this. The result was that when Jesus had finished these words, the multitudes were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. He was teaching with authority. That authoritative word was to be experienced in people's daily lives. They were to learn to trust and put confidence in the teaching of Jesus. So as the Sermon on the Mount came to an end, Jesus said these words in application. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and acts upon them may be compared to a wise man who built his house upon the rock. And the rain descended, and the floods came, and the winds blew, and burst against that house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded upon a rock. So Jesus compares his word to a rock, a firm foundation upon which one can build one's life and survive the storms, trials, difficulties, hardships, emotional undoings that may come as a result. Matthew then goes on to illustrate the power and authority of Christ's word. By his word, Jesus has the authority to heal. Matthew chapter 8, verses 8 and 9. But the centurion answered and said, Lord, I'm not worthy for you to come under my roof, but just say the word, and my servant will be healed. For I too am a man under authority, 
and soldiers come unto me, and I say to this one, go, and he goes, and to another, come, and he comes, and to my slave, do this, and he does it. So this centurion had great faith, for he knew that it was not even necessary for Jesus to come into the presence of the centurion's servant in order for Jesus to heal him. All he had to say was, be healed, and he would be healed. He trusted in the authority of Jesus' word. By his word, Matthew demonstrates that Jesus had authority to cast out demons. Matthew 8, 16. And when evening had come, they brought to him many who were demon-possessed, and he cast out the spirits with a word, and heard all were healed. All he had to do was speak, and it was done. By his word, Jesus had the authority to still the winds and calm the seas. Matthew 8, 26 and 27. And he said to them, Why are you timid, you men of little faith? Then he arose and rebuked the winds and the sea, and it became perfectly calm. And the men marveled, saying, What kind of man is this, that even the winds and the seas obey him? What kind of man is that? He speaks, and it is calm. As I mentioned before, it is by the authority of Jesus alone. He doesn't even call upon his Father. But he speaks, and it is done. The overarching purpose of this chapter is to demonstrate that the Jesus who has authority to teach people, as he was doing in the Sermon on the Mount, has the authority over disease, both close at hand and at a distance. Even the lives of those who want to follow him, and over the winds and waves of the lake, and over the shadowy forces of evil. However we think about them or describe him, he has authority. That's what we need to know as Christians as we seek to follow him. He isn't just somebody with good ideas. He isn't just somebody who will tell us how to establish a better relationship with God. He is a person with authority over everything that the physical world on one hand and the non-physical world on the other can throw at us. This is a Jesus we can trust in every aspect of our lives. We were left with a question last week. The disciples looked at each other and said, Who is this man that even the winds and the seas obey him? As we saw last week, though the question was unanswered, the implication was was sure that he was God. For only God could do what Jesus did. Today, that question is answered. Who is this Jesus? And the answer comes, but it comes from a very unusual source. It comes in a way that we would not expect. For the direct declaration that he is the Son of God comes from demons. Jesus is the Son of God as announced by the demons. This morning, we want to consider lessons learned from Jesus' encounter with the demons. Lessons learned from Jesus' encounter with the deacons. Demons. First, we note Jesus' encounter with the demons 
Matthew 8, verse 28. And when he came to the other side of the country of the Gadarenes, two men who were possessed with demons met him as they were coming out of the tombs. They were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. The demons had taken possession of two men. That is, they had taken control over these two men. Tells us verse 28 that he was demon-possessed. The manifestation of that control was violence. Notice verse 28. They were so exceedingly violent. Evidently, the condition of this man had grown progressively worse over time. The parallel passage in Mark chapter 5 tells us this. And when he had come out of the boat, immediately a man from the tombs with an unclean spirit met him. And no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain. Key words, no one was able to bind him anymore. Evidently, in the past, they were able to subdue this man. They were able to bind him. They were able to put him in chains. They were able to at least restrict his movements his behavior, his violence. And he had his dwelling among the tombs because he often became bound with shackles and chains and the chains had been torn apart by him and the shackles broken in pieces and no one was strong enough to subdue him. So as time went on, this man got stronger and stronger and more violent. They put chains on him But eventually he was able to break free of those chains and break free of those shackles. And he got to the place where they could no longer wrestle him to the ground and put shackles or chains on him any longer. Presumably, more and more demons had entered this man. Just how many demons Entered this man, we don't know. But according to Mark chapter 5, verse 9, it says, And he was asking him, What is your name? And he said to him, My name is Legion, for we are many. So he was possessed with many, many demons. And these demons now had taken him over. They were speaking for him. And they were addressing Jesus. This man had grown increasingly more violent and powerful. Now back to our Text in Mark chapter 5, verse 3. And his dwelling was among the tombs, and uh, uh, no one was able to bind him anymore, even with a chain, because he had often been bound with shackles and chains, and the chains had been torn apart, the shackles broken in pieces, no one was strong enough to subdue him. Now Matthew 8.28, I'm sorry, Matthew 8.28. Notice the end of the verse. They were so exceedingly violent that no one could pass by that road. These men had become so fierce that no one was able to walk down that road anymore past those tombs because they had to encounter these demoniacs. No one could walk down that road except Jesus. Jesus 
encounters the demoniacs. Number two, Jesus is addressed as Son of God by the demons, verse 29. And behold, they cried out, saying, What do we have to do with you, Son of God? Have you come to torment us before the time? The key element of this narrative is the relationship between the demons and Jesus. They are clearly under his authority. And we are first introduced to this relationship by their crying out concerning Jesus that he is the Son of God. And that declaration is both informative and sobering. Informative, for they immediately recognize Jesus for who he is, namely the Son of God. They know him. There's no question. But not only did they know that he was the Son of God, notice what else they know. They know that there was a time in which he would judge the world. Notice verse 29. Have you come to torment us? Have you come to bring punishment to us for what we have done? And thirdly, they knew that the time of judgment was yet in the future. For notice it says in verse 29, Son of God, Have you come to torment us? Now these words, before the time. Before the time. They knew that there was a time of judgment, and they knew that the time of judgment was not now. It was in the future. That's in keeping with what we know in John chapter 3, verse 16, For God so loved the world, that he gave his only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. For God sent not his Son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him should be saved. He didn't send his Son into the world to condemn it, to judge it, but to deliver it, to save it. That time of judgment would be future. Now was the time for deliverance. It's it's interesting that these demons knew that there was a time of judgment and that time was future. So it's very easy to speculate that they understood the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. They knew what he was about. They knew his mission, if you will. They knew what the Son of God had come into the world to accomplish. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 says this, And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, in whose case the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelieving, that they may not see the light of the gospel, the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. Satan is actively now seeking to blind the eyes of individuals, so that they will not come to place faith in Jesus Christ. Jesus is actively, excuse me, Satan is actively opposing the work of Jesus Christ 
trying to overthrow that redemptive work in the lives of individuals. Much in keeping with this passage that describes to Jesus judgment and a future future condemnation. So why is this quite sobering? It teaches us that believing in Jesus is more than giving assent to truths concerning who Jesus is. James chapter 2, verses 19 and 20 says, You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons believe also and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish fellow, that faith without works is useless? Sometimes we get excited if someone says that they even believe that there's a God. Oh yes, I believe that there's a God. Wow, that person must be close to the kingdom. God must be doing a wonderful work in their life because they say they believe in God. That is no great statement. Scripture says if we don't believe that there's a God, we're foolish. We should be able to look at this world and see that there's a God. Sometimes we get excited if, if someone is willing to say that Jesus is the Son of God. Affirm the virgin birth. Affirm the reality that he is indeed the second person of the Godhead. The demons know that Jesus is the second person of the Godhead. They know the redemptive plan and work of God. It isn't about what we know concerning the person of Jesus Christ. It's not just giving mental assent to a certain doctrinal truths and check them off. Do you believe in Jesus? Do you believe he's the Son of God? Do you believe in the resurrection? Do you believe in this? Do you believe in that? That is the beginning, but it's not the end. The question is, what do you do with that information? What do you do with that understanding? Do you come to grips with the authority that Jesus has as the Son of God? Are you willing to acknowledge and accept his authority in your life? Which has the implication of, A, first, repenting of one's sin. Which means that we understand and know that our sinful past behavior, whether it be fully understood and known or not fully understood and known, either way, is unacceptable to God. And secondly, to place faith and trust in Jesus Christ, it means that one recognizes his authority and his rightful rule over our lives. Now, that doesn't mean we're going to be sinless. It doesn't mean that we now are going to completely and and totally surrender every aspect of our life so that now we live perfect godly, holy lives. But it does mean that there is a conscious recognition that my responsibility is to love, honor, 
and serve him. The demons, though believers in Jesus, were not followers of Jesus. Though they knew the truths about Jesus, they were not seeking to repent of their behaviors at all. They were not seeking to acknowledge his authority in their lives any more than what they were forced to. That's the key word. They were forced to acknowledge his authority. They did not willingly accept his authority in their lives. Thirdly, Jesus is implored by the demons to let them alone. Matthew chapter 8, verses 30 and 31. Now there was at a distance from them a land, uh, excuse me, a herd of many swine feeding. And the demons began to entreat him, saying, If you're going to cast us out, send us into the herd of swine. Evidently, demons prefer to inhabit people and animals as opposed to just wandering aimlessly through this world. The condition of this man is quite similar to the condition that is described in Matthew chapter 12. Listen to these words. Matthew 12, 43. Now when the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it passes through waterless places, seeking rest, and does not find it. Then it says, I will return to my house from which I came, and when it comes, it finds it unoccupied, swept, and put in order. Then it goes and takes along with it seven other spirits, more wicked than itself, and they go in and live there, and the last state of that man becomes worse than the first. That is the way it will be with this evil generation. Perhaps that is the condition of this man. Perhaps possessed by one demon eventually becomes possessed by more demons and more demons and more demons and he becomes perpetually worse perpetually out of control. And what these townspeople were able to do by force, eventually they could do no longer. Fourthly, Jesus commands the demons to depart from the man. Jesus is going to send these demons out of this man with a single phrase. Notice Matthew 8, 32. And he said to them, Be gone! And they came out. There is no struggle. There is no wrestling. There is no fighting. There are no chains. There are no shackles. There are no whips. There are no contentions. There is simply his word, be gone. And they come out. 
There is not a struggle here of any manifestation whatsoever. How many demons were there? We don't know. We do know, according to Mark, that there were 2,000 swine that they end up entering into. Does that mean there were 2,000 demons? I don't know. I do know that 2,000 demons are no match for one Jesus. I do know that the whole angelic fallen realm is no match for Jesus. I do know that God laughs as he thinks of the nations of this world rising up in rebellion against Jesus. There is no one, no entity, no people, no force, no demonic world that is able to resist the authoritative word of Jesus Christ. He is the very incarnate word of God. John 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was with God. And the Word became flesh, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory. Glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. He is the Incarnation of the Word of God. In John chapter 1, it says, All things were made by Him, and without Him there was not anything made which was made. In in Genesis chapter 1, God said, Let there be light, and there was light. God spoke this world into existence. Jesus, the incarnate Son of God, is the authoritative Word of God. He speaks and it is done. Jesus does not simply restrain the demons. He controls the demons. He forces the demons to leave this man. Verse 32. And they came out. And they implore Jesus to allow them to enter the pigs. Verse 32. He said to them, be gone. And they came out and went into the swine. After entering the pigs... They cause the pigs to perish. They enter the swine, and behold, the whole herd rushed down the steep bank into the sea and perished in the waters. The result was that this man was delivered. He was blessed. His condition is described in Mark chapter 5, verse 15. The man who had been demon-possessed was sitting down, clothed and in his right mind. He was transformed. He was delivered. 
He was set free. The demons enter the swine. The swine go running off a cliff and drown. Here we see the contrast between Jesus and the demons. Jesus came to give life. The demonic world wants to destroy life. Jesus came to set free. The demons seek to bring bondage and confinement. Sin always brings bondage and confinement. Sin is, by its very nature, addictive. Whatever the sinful behavior is, it tends to be addictive. It tends to be encompassing. It tends to bind individuals so that they cannot become free of it. Whether that be pornography and viewing pornography and going farther and farther down that road, whether it be drugs, whether it be alcohol, whether it be drunkenness, whether it be lying, whatever it is, sin by its very nature is addictive. It is enslaving. And it is destructive. Jesus came to set us free. He said, I came that they might have life and have it more abundantly. And certainly included in that more abundant life is the being set free from the power of sin in our lives so that now we are able to serve him with a glad heart and glad mind. Fifthly, Jesus is encountered by the crowd as a result of the demons. The people who were guarding the pigs went and told the townspeople what had happened. Verse 33. And the herdsmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything, including the incident of the demoniacs. That last phrase in verse 33 I find to be fascinating. It says, and the herdmen ran away and went to the city and reported everything. And then almost as a side, it says, including the incident of the demoniacs. You would have thought that the story of the demoniacs would have been central to the telling of what had occurred when the herdsmen went to the city to tell them what had happened we find that it becomes almost incidental. It serves a purpose, but it serves a conciliatory purpose. What the herdsmen do is go to the town to tell them that their 2,000 pigs are gone. These herdsmen are responsible for a herd of 2,000. Now, that's quite a herd in that day. It's rather reasonable to assume 
that that herd comprises all of the town's pigs. That they were having them together, being nurtured and cared for, and they probably had people that took shifts in uh, bearing responsibility for these swine. Now these herdsmen have to go back and tell the town, all our pigs are lost. Well, what happened to them? They drowned. Well, how'd they drown? They just ran off a cliff. Pigs don't just run off cliffs. You must have been negligent. You must have driven them the wrong way. What in the world is going wrong with you? What's wrong with you? No, 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 they did. They, they, they just ran off a cliff and drowned. They ran off a cliff because Jesus came and cast out demons and put them into these pigs. That's why they ran off the cliff. It was a backwards introduction to the power of Jesus and what he had done. It did not focus on the deliverance of this man, but rather on the destruction of the swine. So now these townspeople go out to see Jesus. Verse 34. And behold, the whole city came out to meet Jesus. And then we have this curious statement, verse 34. And when they saw him, they entreated him to depart from their region. They said in a cordial manner, please leave. We don't want you here. Why did they say that? Well, first, their response to Jesus is that they were afraid of him. Mark 5, verse 15 tells us more. And they came to Jesus and observed the man who had been demon-possessed sitting down, clothed and in his right mind, the very man who had the legion, and they became frightened. They became afraid. They feared. What was it that they feared? It wasn't the man. He was sitting there. He was clothed in his right mind. It wasn't the man. They didn't ask the man to leave. In fact, Mark tells us that he stays and now is going to commune with the townspeople. It's not the man that they are afraid of. It's Jesus that they are afraid of. Why are they afraid of Jesus? Because he has incredible power. Power like they had never witnessed. Power to do what they were unable to do by their natural resources and strength. 
He could tell demons what to do. Just think for a moment what it would be like if God misused his power. What would it be like if we did not serve a holy and just and righteous and merciful and compassionate God? What if our God was a small God? What if our God liked to play with us like sometimes young boys like to play with a caught mouse and tease it and frustrate it or get pleasure in stamping out the life of an ant or just for kicks walk over and squish a spider? What if God got his jollies out of squishing us Tormenting us, frustrating us, playing with us. What a fearful thing that would be. But that's not who Jesus is. And that's not how Jesus acts. For Jesus came not to destroy life, but to save life. Not to divine, not to uh, confine, but to deliver. But it's very important how you reflect on the person and power of Jesus Christ. For if you don't understand his character, you will fear his power. Sometimes, even as Christians, we can fear his power. Have you ever heard someone say, and perhaps in a joking manner, and perhaps not, don't ever pray for patience. Because if you pray for patience, your world is going to go up in upheaval. God is going to do all these terrible things to you in order to uh, teach you patience. Or a missionary says to you, be careful when you pray to give your life over to God because then you're going to end up in, end up in lower Jabib. And you're going to be a jungle inhabitor forevermore. People, there is nothing to fear in following the will of God. And that includes even if he does send you to lower Jabib. For he will be with you, and he will have a purpose in it, and it will not to be frustrate you, it will not to be to torment you, it will not be to play with you. It will to give you freedom and to achieve his purposes in redeeming his world and showing forth his power. There is nothing to fear in totally relinquishing your life to Jesus Christ. Jesus said, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. 
It is the lie of Satan himself that would want us to believe that we are better off in holding on to our life rather than to relinquish our life. Jesus said that those who lose their life will save it. Those who are willing to relinquish control of their lives will experience the greatest freedom and enjoyment and blessing that can be known on this earth. This passage teaches us that we are not to be like the demonic world who knows at a certain level who Jesus is, but opposes his control and dominion over their lives. But we're to understand who Jesus is and appreciate that control and dominion over our lives. It goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. All the way back to Adam and Eve. With the question, were they going to submit to the authority of God? He had said you may eat from the tree of, every tree in the garden, except for one, the the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For the day that you eat thereof, you shall surely die. It's going to have terrible, tragic, consequences. Satan came along, tempted Adam and Eve, and told them that the reason that God had said to them that they should not eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil was not because of their own benefit or welfare. It was because God was oppressive. Because God was small. God was jealous. God did not want them to be like God. Satan had said, you shall not surely die, but your eyes will be open, and you will be like God, knowing good from evil. You are going to be able to be self-determining. You're going to be able to decide for yourself what is right and what is wrong. You get to be God. And people, ever since, have been wanting to determine for themselves what is right and what is wrong. They want to establish their own moral code. They want to establish their own set of standards of conduct of life. They don't want anyone telling them what is right and what is wrong, what is good and what is evil, what is just and what is unjust. And because Adam and Eve rejected the authority of God, then they became perverse in their understanding. That is, evil and good was put on its head. That which was evil they called good, and that which was good they called evil. And we live in a perverse world that doesn't understand the difference between good and evil because they've rejected the authority of God. They were afraid. And as a result, they asked Jesus to leave. They asked Jesus to leave. How sad. A town full of people 
They weren't looking for healing. They weren't looking for deliverance. They wanted Jesus to leave. That's where our passage ends. So I want to pick it up at uh, Mark and tell you more of the story. The man wants to go with Jesus as well. Mark 5.18. And as he was getting into the boat, the men who had been demon-possessed was entreating them that he might accompany him. So Jesus acquiesces, and he gets into a boat, and he's going to leave. And the demoniac who's been delivered, he wants to go with Jesus, quite naturally. He wants to follow Jesus. He's been delivered. He's been set free. He appreciates, he rejoices in, he welcomes the authority of Jesus in his life. He wants to follow him. Interestingly, that the way in which Jesus wants to follow this man is not that this man accompanies him on his journey, but rather the man go back into town. Verse 19. And he did not let him go, but he said to him, Go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you and how he had mercy on you, how he had compassion on you. The man, unsurprisingly, obeys Jesus. Verse 20. And he went away, and he began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him. And everyone marveled. This man is now obedient to Jesus. He listens to his word. He does what he says. And he goes back into Decapolis, and the people marvel. Well, that's nice. What happens then? According to Mark chapter 7, verse 31, and again he went from the region of Tyre and Cyrene through Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. And they brought unto Jesus. These townspeople now welcome Jesus into their midst because of the testimony of this man. And in particular, the testimony of Christ's compassion on him. Not to be afraid. Matthew chapter 8 is a message about the authority of Jesus. All-powerful. This particular narrative is that the all-powerful authority of Jesus is not to be feared if you obey him, if you submit to him, if you trust in him. If you reject that authority, if you want nothing to do with him, oh, that's a fearful thing, because then there's going to be a day of judgment. And no one's going to be able to stand against that judgment. For he's the son of God. He rules over all things. But if you come in faith, acknowledge your sinfulness, trust in him as your Lord and Savior, 
There is nothing to fear in that at all because of the way in which Jesus uses his power for our good, not for our detriment. So here are the concluding lessons. First, Jesus is the Son of God. Jesus has authority over the demonic world. Jesus is the answer to our need. He does have power over sickness. He does have power over nature. He does have power over the demonic world. He does have power over all things. And Jesus exercises that power for our deliverance to his glory. We should welcome his control over our lives. We should not fear or run from it. We should marvel if a person does not welcome Jesus into their world. We should stand in amazement at this crowded city who implores Jesus to leave. Let me ask you this morning, first of all, do you welcome Jesus' authority in your life? Do you crave it? Do you ask more and more for him to take control of your life, to wrestle with your unbelief, to bring you into a greater submission and subjection to him, to give you a heart that just wants to love and serve him and with reckless abandonment turn our lives over to him? Or do we selfishly want to hold on? And have control over our lives. And not have him tell us what to do. Salvation is that turning one's life over to Jesus Christ. Recognizing his authority. Of coming to grips with, I have been living my life intentionally or unintentionally apart from your authority. Not recognizing your kingship. Not acknowledging, in a true sense, of what it means that you are the Son of God and to be worshipped and to be served. And so now I come to worship you, I come to serve you, I come to love you, I come to adore you. I repent of my sinfulness. I want your deliverance. I hope that is your testimony this morning. We also learn in this passage the reality of the, of the kingdom, that it's future, it's present and not yet. Jesus had authority over the demons. Jesus allows them to enter the swine. Why allows that? I don't know. I'm not going there. Can't unpack that. It's what Jesus does. I do know that part of it is because it's not the time yet to torment the demons, and to bring them into absolute subjection and control. But have no fear that that day is coming in which Satan is going to be confined to a bottomless pit. That day is coming in which all evil is going to be done away with in this world. This is just a manifest token of that reality that's yet future. It does teach us 
that Jesus values people more than property. It does teach us that we should rejoice when a person is set free and brings honor and glory to God. Lastly, we should see the incredible compassion and mercy and grace of Jesus Christ. Jesus does a wonderful miracle of grace only to receive a response of a people that ask him to leave. It would have been easy for Jesus to shake off the dust of his feet, clap his hands, and say, I'm done. You made your bed, now lie in it. I came, I showed my grace, I showed my power, I showed my mercy. I want nothing more to do with you. No, God, through Jesus Christ, in his infinite mercy and grace, leaves because they want him to leave, but doesn't leave himself without witness. And a man stays behind to prepare and ready this very same city so that in the future they do accept Jesus Christ as their Savior. Learn from the grace and mercy of God, but don't presume upon it. First of all, give thanks. Let me ask you, let me ask you to raise your hand. How many people heard the gospel of Jesus Christ more than one time before they believed? Look around you. People, that's the grace of God. Can you imagine saying to the Son of God, we don't want you? We don't want your salvation. We don't want your grace. And yet he continues to strive with us. Wow, there's the mercy of God. Don't withhold God's mercy from others. Don't ever stop sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with someone just because they've rejected it. Even if they've rejected it more than once or twice, or three or four times. Don't give up on people. Continue to bear the record of the mercy and grace of God in your own life. But conversely, if you're here this morning and you have heard the gospel many times and haven't responded, don't kid yourself. Don't think that everything's all right. Don't believe that God's mercy and grace goes on forever. Because it doesn't. Behold, now is the appointed time. Behold, now is the day of salvation. There is a day of judgment coming. There is a day in which you will no longer have the opportunity to repent. There is a day 
in which you are going to be dismissed from his presence. Be gone if you don't know Christ. Don't understand his mercy and grace as weakness. It's power. Trust in Jesus and don't fear him. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you that he is the Son of God. We thank you that he indeed indeed does deliver and set free from sin. We do pray for anyone here this morning who does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. May this be the day. May today be that day in which they no longer seek to fear, to submit their lives to his authority, but rather repent, acknowledge their willfulness, their disobedience, and welcome his governance of their lives and deliverance. Oh Lord, help us to give you the praise, the honor, and the glory you are so richly deserving of. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.